I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nyson for our Kent Vavelham Men and Women's and Catalonia Stage 7, the final stage recap. It's going to be in one beast of a podcast, three separate YouTube videos, you know, that's how it works. Uh, big shout out to our show partner, LaCole. LaCole love the classics and so much that they're sponsoring or they're a, a named title sponsor, in fact, of one of the teams competing in Hen Favelham today, Drops LaCole in the women's race. If you want to go and check out Drops LaCole and LaCole, then they're doing an Instagram takeover on LaCole's Instagram, which is LaCole UK. Um, pretty obvious which one it is. It's blue tick verified. And if you go into the Insta stories, you've got the behind the scenes of the Lacole uh, race day at Hen Vabelham, which is happening as we record because the live coverage of the women's doesn't start for a while. But yeah, go and check that out on the Lacole Insta. But Benji's banned me from telling you the Hen Vabelham profile. We'll do that race first. Apparently he has to do it because my pronunciation is not good enough. Yes, I'm going to be taking this one over. 247 kilometers, and what's special about Hen Vevelgem is that it's kind of divided into three aspects of the race. The first 140 kilometers are relatively flat, but in this area we go through the mood, and we spoke about it in the uh, Brugge de Ponne recap we did. It's a section that always allows for a bit of crosswinds if the wind is uh, well-placed, and today it was extremely well-placed. It was kind of placed in a similar fashion as the Hen to Abraham of 2015 at the start of today's race. So that was looking good. I was looking forward to it. After that section of pure flatness with potential crosswinds, we've got the hill section, the bergs. And that's also kind of split in two parts from like a good 100 kilometers to go to like 70 kilometers to go. There's five bergs, including this Herpenberg, Fidenjeberg, Baneberg, Kemmelberg, and Monteberg, just before that Kemmelberg. Then a bit of a transitioning section in between of like a good 10 to 15 to 20 kilometers that leads back into the bags back with the Monteberg and Kemmelberg so second time Kemmelberg right here then we've got the Scherpenberg, Fidenjeberg, Baneberg and eventually the final climb which is again the Kemmelberg. This would be usually a deciding moment for a group would they stay away or would they not stay away because that leads into the uh, final 25 to 30 kilometers which is relatively flat going to the finish line. Now, what usually happens in Hienwevelgem is that a group forms either in the bergs or before the bergs in these crosswinds, and then eventually you've got a battle between the peloton and the group that gets away on the flat section afterwards to see if a sprint comes out or the front group ends up taking it in a bit of a, a skirmish. Today I was, well, pretty similar, but we'll go into it in a second. I think that there's one change I need to uh, address beforehand. There was a fire at the finish line. I think uh, a few kilometers from the finish line, a recycling factory uh, that was on fire. And fire was so extreme that they had to change the last five kilometers of the stage. Not really that intricate, but it did kind of change the aspect of the final five kilometers. Usually you've got a visit to Menon, which is a, a city near the finish line. And this allows for a lot of cornering and allows for a late attacker to potentially get more advantage out of it. Today, that changed, and they had to take a whole way around to fire and leading back into the final three kilometers of the actual original profile. Same finish. This, uh, yep, same finish. But this changed because, well, it's a wider road, and they had a bit of headwind in that, tra- well, that, like, turn they have to do that they didn't have to do originally. So that is a bit of a disadvantage this time around towards riders that attack in the final five kilometers. But, uh, yeah, it opened up like crazy, didn't it? Well, before people getting dropped before Benji or Hans Grower not permitted to start by the race doctor, 
um, despite much to the UCI commissaires or Bora Hans Gros protestations, they had a close contact, so COVID ruled them out. Not sure if they have any other any actual positives. Trek Segafredo also couldn't start, um, which is a shame. They got last year's winner, Maz Pedersen, some crosswind animals in that team. Real shame. So Trek and Bora out, and I really wanted to see how Pollock would have gone today, Benji, too. And I think that really changed the race. Those two teams, probably top, two of the top five strongest teams being out. Uh, but unfortunately, the most exciting part of the race, at least in Benji, in my view, didn't get televised. Maybe I'll have it on the highlights uh, tomorrow, but there was crosswind chaos, um, not even overusing that word. Apparently, with like over 100 Ks to go, more than that, there was a group of 20-plus riders and we're just going off like live tickers i think la flamme rouge are listening to the race radio or something trying to figure out what's going on and no quick step riders had made that front group but favorites van art bennett uh well matthews rider but (laughs) uh bennett sorry not only one quick step rider had made it into the front group quick men trenton nitsolo uh, Van Poppel, Dupont, as well as a couple of bike exchange riders helping Matthews, maybe more than a couple of Mezgets, Bauer, and I might be missing Stanner too. So that was really surprising, and that pretty much stayed the whole way. You can see some footage of the Vias, uh Renard put up on Twitter, uh, some pretty sick footage, it must be said, from behind when the crosswinds were going hard. and. It pretty much stayed that way. Did it re-split again, Benji? Or was it just attrition from that point? It was a bit of a war of attrition on multiple fronts because you have that initial split of those 21 riders initially that got away in the peloton, I think still like 170k to go, like you mentioned, like way yeah. from the finish line like, in the movement like world section. champs. Yes, exactly. And what happened afterwards is that the second peloton who was split in that initial split, then came together. We saw the entire part from the moment that they left this Demuden section, so the marches we spoke about again, to relatively a good 40 kilometers before they start the hill section. That was an entire chasing scene behind because that peloton was trying to catch those 21 riders that was ahead. Obviously, you had a small break in a way that was ahead as well, but didn't really come into play today, so it's not too much uh, worthy to put attention into that. But it split again, and that was like in the last 30 kilometers before the bugs, where the peloton behind started splitting again and splintering all over in another crosswind section. And I think what ruined the entire chains from that point is that every single time that there was some cooperation in that second peloton group, something would happen that caused it to splinter again. The crosswinds, twice, and then eventually when they started going to the Bergs, which, yeah, was a, a pretty special move, I think, that we can mention is a, an attack by two quickstep riders to try and basically make a move from the peloton, who was already kind of splintered on the first yep. game to the front group. And it was a bit special because usually we don't see the Koenig being, uh, being the team that has to make something happen because they missed out on something and today that was that was it completely from start to finish they had to do it the first time on the camelback with those two rides i think it was t-bar and was it lampart i'm not actually sure ballerini yes let's try and let's try and define the race situation because this is about the time live coverage started so we can speak with a bit more confidence about it the gap between group let's just say group one with the favorites back to the group led by Quickstep was between 50 seconds and a minute 20 for a lot of that period of time. We still have about 100 kilometers remaining. De Koenig chasing because they are not happy with having Sam Bennett in this group. And I'll read out all the names, just the completeness, because that will make you surprised that only Bennett made it into this group. Bauer, Bennett, Bissiger, Bistrom, Colbrelli, Du Bois, Dupont, Erviti, Ferrov, Golash, Pung, Lecroc, Lemoy, 
Mass, Matthews Mezgesch, Nitzolo, Rex, Ruch, Standard, Switzerland, Trenton, Van Aert, Van Hoedonk, and Van Poppel. One quick step rider in that group, their, their sprints are isolated. That's why when they hit the Hellingen, uh, and I think it was the Barnenberg, we saw the quick step. I thought panicking. As Benji mentioned, it was Stibar trying to bridge with Ballerini. I think they had Narsen and Greg Van Avermaet behind, Fajer de Citroën. Maybe there just wasn't much coordination. Maybe bike exchange riders are doing a good job blocking. But that 50-second-plus gap to a front group that was working really well, I was like, oh, that's a big gap to try and bridge, especially when Durbridge joined them from Bike Exchange sitting on. And they got on to the Kemmelberg the first time, as Benji said, and Stibar dropped Ballerini. So I don't know whether that move was to bring Ballerini with him or Ballerini was to try and help Stibar bridge across. Very, a little bit confusing and a little bit of panic for the Koenig quick step. They then went on to the plug streaks. 55-second gap, 72 k's to go. De Koenig was still behind. What are the plug streets, Benji? So basically, this is in a region where, well, uh, World War uh, was held, um, the first one. And this is usually called uh, Plugsteert, these, uh, these streets and this area. And these are gravel sections. And one of them is, for example, the Hill 63 uh, gravel section. Very uh, known hill from uh, World War, I think is the first one. Let's hope I'm not saying this wrong, because that's uh, pretty harsh if I don't know that correctly as a Flemish person. But um, I think that they're basically just some glorified gravel sections. And it's it's not that they're going to make the biggest difference in this, but we do know from history that a lot of riders do tend to uh, have punctures on these, like Christoph today again on the same flat street that he had uh, a puncture as well a few years ago. Mezgetch indeed. He uh, dropped out of the front group, am I right? Yes, Mezgetch punctured, so Bike Exchange were down an extra rider. They still had Bauer with Matthews and Stannard, I think. And there's no real moves to describe from Stiebar with Ballerini. I mean, then De Koenig tried again with Lampart multiple times. Lampart was either trying to bridge across in a smaller group of maybe three or four, or he was just straight up towing that, let's call it, group two on the road. And there was attrition out of that first group of 20 riders. You might have noticed in the names I read out, a pretty big divergence in ability. That's because some of the riders have been mopped up from the break that's because maybe they were just in the right place at the right time when the echelons first happened in the race. So Jonas Ruch was dropping eventually, Rex dropping, uh, Mars Lewin, uh Golas. And most of that dropping, or the next big separation, was on the second ascent of the Kemmelberg with, I think, about 50, 50 k's to go or just over. Wow, fun art. I wouldn't say it, it wasn't a massive attack and it wasn't because he didn't have the legs. I think he was just trying to re-split it once again and it was a nice move from Van Aert and he created a 10-man group dropping about half of that other group who became now group two on the road immediately over 20 seconds behind them. And then you've still got De Koenig chasing now in group three. The front group of 10 riders with Van Aert was Bennett, still made it over the second ascent of the Kemmelberg, Van Poppel, Ventemarche, Van Aert, Van Hoydonk. Van Hoydonk moved from CCC to Jumbo Visma this year. Colbrelli, Matthews, Stannard, Nizzolo, Trentin and Kung. You'll notice about the composition of that group, pretty much all of them are sprinters, be it a bunch sprinter, combination sprinter or like a classics sprinter like Trenton. All of them are sort of the guys who they back their sprint in uh, a reduced bunch, except for Kung and Hoidonk and Stannard were working for their leaders. So, yeah, at that point, Benji, did you think Quickstep or the other group two had any chance of catching that group? And if not, 
why not? Why would that group work together so well for the rest of the race? I think there's multiple factors that led into, led into uh, the thought process that I had at that moment. First of all, the front group has basically sprinters plus Kung and Van Hoydong. This means that, um, well, those sprinters are likely going to work together because they all want to kind of bring it towards a finishing sprint. Van Hoydong is not going to uh, splinter it himself. He's going to try and keep it together because the more people they have, the more they can well, try and get away from the people behind. That's also one of the reasons where I think Wout van Aert wasn't going to really explode anything on either of these clans because the more people he has at that moment, the better the situation is for the uh, Postberg section. And I think that that is one of the factors, just the fact that sprinters are there, they're going to try and work together. Kung is the only person that will be the dude that will try to attack at some point, but not expecting that on the hills itself. And then the group behind is basically a group that has been cracking and splintering every single crosswind, every single hill, but also the factor that the Koenig, despite their moves, every time the move failed, they weren't pacing again. It'd been like 100Ks of them trying to get more riders into the front group because they knew with the last descent of the Kemmelberg and Bennett with no teammates, that's not the ideal situation for them. They want Stibar, Lampard up there um but as benji said they'd eat in 20 seconds and then just hold that gap because the front group at no point did this front group ever stop cooperating pretty much all the way through to the finish there was no finessing everyone looking around because of the composition of that group and the second group runners who'd been dropped because they didn't have the legs they were never coming back so 38 k's to go 45 seconds from that group of 10 mostly sprinters with the race favorite van art back to group two and then more back to the Deconic quick step nas and van avermaet group probably over a minute at that point three k's to go into the camel birthday lineup trenton accelerates at the bottom and we'll talk about Trenton, I think, afterwards. Van Aert then counterattacks over him, but not a full like him and MVDP going head-to-head attack on this last climb. It's more just an acceleration. Bennett started dropping, but not completely distanced. Him and Colbrelli were kind of fighting to get up to Wout Van Aert's wheel. Van Hoydonk was just distanced over the top. De Koenig, they attacked on the Kemmelberg in that third group. And they were at a minute still at that point. Sam Bennett, whilst he made it over with that group, they had 33 k's of flat road to go, 48 second gap, and he started vomiting on the right-hand side of the road like a lot of liquid. So, um, yeah, maybe he had minus 0.0% in the bid on accidentally or what happened. But obviously that big effort cost him and he wasn't feeling too good. And, yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's really not much more to say. For the next 15 kilometres, there's just these failed attempts from behind with Lampard, Van Avermaet, Narsen, Bistrom, Van Bala, Vermeer, Lacroix and Lemoyne getting from like a minute 10 to 55 seconds, working together for a bit, and then it just all falls apart. Lampard gets mad justifiably probably and it goes nowhere and eventually people would just start attacking out of that second group um 25 k's go 53 seconds still no change to the situation everyone's rolling turns on the front 15 k's to go Wafanat rolls his turn van hoidonk rolls over him and then Van Aert loses his will. Van Hoydonk looks under his left shoulder, doesn't get out of the saddle, and then kicks, changes up a gear, accelerates really hard in the saddle, almost imperceptibly, drops Bennett and Van Poppel on this flat section. Matthews just hang on, hangs on, and then we have 10Ks to go. Reminder of the group, called Brelli, Van Aert, Trentin, Matthews, Kung, Van Hoydonk, and Nitsolo. So we still have some genuinely quick men, Nitsolo, in this group. Remember, he mugged Bora Hans Groen Ackerman in Paranese Stage 2 crosswind <laughs> reduced bunch sprint in 2020. Turgis attacked from the back group, but they were irrelevant. The gap was too big. A minute with under 10 k's to go. 
what happened in the last sort of nine Ks, Benji, and what should riders have done differently? I think it's a very difficult situation for everybody involved, but I think everybody was waiting for one rider in that front group to make a move. And that's Stefan Kung. He's the only rider that does not have a confidence at all in his sprint because he can't sprint. And the others have some confidence in their sprint. They're not all equal at sprinting, that's for sure. But Stefan Kung is definitely the rider that everyone was expecting to attack. And I'm afraid that the other riders knew that as well because he obviously was in typical echelon formation, just like everybody in that group, just taking his turn the entire circle around, loop by loop by loop. And they go into the section where that is not the original parkour. So for like three kilometers, they go onto a wider road with a bit of a headwind. And then the issue is that it's harder to get away from that group. It's not an ideal section to attack. So that's also not benefiting anyone in that group to make that move. And we noticed at a certain point that I think it was with, I think, four kilometers to go or something, four, four and a half kilometers to go, where um, King was trying to put himself at the back, and then he got moved into having to do the loop again, and he tried very fast to do that loop. So it was like, it was so like phoned in that he was going to try something because not a single one had taken that, that entire relay turn so quickly then Kung at that very second. So Kung took that took that loop and was trying to get to the back as fast as possible because you can't attack from a position that is ahead of people because everybody will see it. So he was trying to get to the back, but one man was ready, and that was Nizolo. Nizolo was like, no, 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 no. You're not getting yeah. behind me anymore. <laughs> I'm going to sit in your wheel. And Kung was like, oh, shit, now I've got a problem. But he still tried. He still attempted his attack at that moment. Which, yeah, I don't think you can really blame. I don't think there's much else you can do as going in this situation. He had to try. Yeah, he had to try something. And he tried to attack on the left, Nizolo directly on his wheel. He knew it was coming and he was there. Matches in the wheel of Nizolo. The rest was kind of ready because it wasn't really the most powerful attack. And then one of the riders at the front moved to the left, which kind of ruined the entire attack by Kung. And then it was like, should I try again? I'm like past everybody now. But then he was like, okay, I'll just sit in the second wheel because this ain't going nowhere. And this leads into the last yeah. two kilometers with just Nathan van Hooydonk moving to the front and basically bringing Wout van Aert on a throne to the finish line because, well, bringing all the sprinters on, on a throne to the finish line then. And nobody else really made a move anymore. Do you think that anybody else should have tried before we went to the final sprint? Trenton, maybe. Um, but, I mean, what can you do? You might be costing yeah. yourself a top three most likely by doing that. And yep. that's pretty much what happened with Kung. Van Hoydonk, unbelievable today. Closing down Kung before Kung had even got past his back wheel. Yeah. Shut that down. ASAP, really, really strong. I thought they might have attacked with him because he looked so good and maybe to force the other sprinters to close. But they backed Wild Van Art for the sprint 100%. Uh, Van Hoydonk leading them out into the last 500 metres, this group of Cold Rally, Trenton, Matthews, Nizzolo, and Van Aert. Kung was second wheel. He just did a lead out just because, I guess, into the last 250. Then Wal Van Aert kicked off his wheel, third wheel, straight through the middle, gapped everybody, immediately put a big gap into them. And I mean, it was a very, very easy sprint victory for Van Aert. He posted up with like 25 metres to go. Van Hoydonk was celebrating behind him with 25 to go, Ks to go as 25 Ks. Yeah, probably there were as well, but 25 metres <laughs> to go. Nitsolo was coming round, but he was started too far back. He came second, three Italians after Van Aert. So Van Aert, Nitsolo, Trenton third, Colbrelli fourth, Matthews fifth, Kung sixth and Van Hoydonk seventh. Matthews seemed to be having issues with cramps or something. We thought he might have been playing, but maybe it was legitimate in the last five Ks. Then I'm looking at who came out of the second group. I know Tertius attacked Benji, so I think it was Van Bala, Tertius, and Shani Vadimirsch, eight, nine, ten, and then not sure of the results after that. No. Quick step riders in the top 10 of Gen Fabelham, Benji. After E3, Harel Becker dominance, 
some people won't be getting their uh, their soup from Patrick Lefebvre this evening. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I think that it all comes down to one split second, the second that the initial echelon got formed with yeah. Wout van Aert in it. And I think that is the only moment in this entire race where they can really blame themselves because afterwards they had to run behind everything that was happening. They had to try and fix what they lost with that initial move and they couldn't do it, which means that the initial crosswind devastated their race. And that no one really wanted to help. The funniest part I find in yours because, well, they made the initial echelon <laughs> and <laughs> there was one rider in it, Mikael Golas. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I don't know they, what their plan was, but I think Marvel, it didn't work. <laughs> I know. Yeah. No, I, we're just going to just blow this race apart and then <laughs> not get Van Baal in the front group. And Golas got dropped on the Walpanard acceleration on the second Kendallberg. Um Van Hoydonk, Benji. We spoke on the Jumbo Visma preview pod. We said he was obviously signed for this reason to help Walpanard and shore up Jumbo Visma's team in the classics. I got yep. to admit, I didn't see this sort of performance coming. This was really, really strong to have to be the only team with multiple riders in the front group supporting Wat van Aert. It it goes to show what a difference it made. We could have had a different race today where Wat van Aert's in a group front group with Kung, Lampard, Stierbar and Seneschal, and that would have been big problems. And that's what we've seen before. But today, completely the opposite. And while Fanart dominated this sprint, and Jumbo Visma, let's say, just had the race played out perfectly. Apparently, while Fanart didn't go full on any of the Kemmelbergs because he didn't want to drop Van Hoydonk. He's got like that 30K flat run into the finish. You don't want to be closing down moves all on their own. Do you think the presence of Van Hoydonk even prevented too much happening in that last 30Ks? I think it certainly boycotted the attacks a bit more than last year because last year we had a situation very similar, but Turnison dropped from that front group in the last 30 kilometers, something like that. And that allowed for more attacks in the final section with Van Hoydonk being here knowing that he's a pretty good flat rider, he's got a time trial, so he can he can do this, he can counter stuff in these flat sections. And um, we might be underrating his history because like, he had a few off years, I'd say, but I think in 2017, I could be completely wrong, and it's so sad that I'm wrong about this, but when Oliver Nassen became Belgian champion, Nathan van Hoydonk was second in that race, and... Um, he did that also being the sole rider of BMC in that group all over the cobble sections with the best cobble riders of Belgium that day. So, yeah, certainly a rider that can ride cobbles, that's for sure. And I'm happy that he's, again, on a level that he's displaying stuff because last year it wasn't really the case. And I'm just happy because he's also a fellow pro cycling manager player. So, highlighted. Yeah. Oh, really? But um, next to that, yeah, just an awesome ride by the dude. And it... It all comes down to the initial echelon again. I think that it's easy to say that, oh, they had a better team today. Yeah, Jumbo, I think that they had a better team or perhaps than last year in the sense that one of their riders could stick in the last 30 kilometers. But they also had, uh, I, I can't call it luck, but perhaps the cleverness to be in the right position when that echelon happened. And when you have two people instead of one person in that echelon, it changed a lot and that's, displayed by Van Hoydonk here. It could just as well have been, for example, Trentin with Kristoff, and then one of the two, well, they probably wouldn't work for each other, I think, but still. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, you get mean, the gist of it. We we don't need to say Jumbo Business Classics team strength problems are completely fixed. Really great day today, but we saw at Harrell Becker the opposite of that, you know, just a few days ago, so... Um, I know he had the puncture well for not, and that kind of stymied his race, but still, it's it was really good today. Really good to see, and a big win from Wafanat. Uh, any other storylines, Benji? I mean, I'm going to title my video a crosswind chaos or something similar you tomorrow. Have to, like. I'll have, I have to, because the final really wasn't that interesting, and I think 
last year, I just remember having Seneschal, Pedersen, everyone attacking Vanderpool. Here's a hypothetical for you that we maybe might put on the LRCP Shorts YouTube channel once it exists. If Vanderpool was in this front group with Art, how does that change the complexion of this final 25 kilometers? It would depend on whether Vanderpool would be in it alone or would have a teammate, because if he is there alone, he tries to explode it even more on the last kilometer, which makes sure that yeah, the group exactly. doesn't stick True. together. And then afterwards, you have the last 30 kilometers of flatness with smaller groups and more 1v1s. And I think a better situation for the rider like Kung to get away, because then you don't have Nathan van Hooydonk anymore in that group. Then you won't be having Bennett, obviously, because if Vanderpool launches on on the Camelback, I'm, I'd be surprised if there's more than four people left on that moment. Van Aert can't use the tactic of trying to keep it together, and it would be a completely different last 30 kilometers, certainly. But that all comes down to whether Van der Poel would have a teammate, because let's say if Van der Poel has Vermeer there, who was again, once again, super strong today, then it could also play in differently, because then Van der Poel could try the same tactic as, as Van Hooydonk and Van Aert did here. So... It really depends on the situation, but I think that if on the pool would be in that front group, it would have been splintered way more after the Camelback, the last one. We've had a few signings that were supposed to be Cobble Classic signings heralded this year. Ivan Garcia Quartina from Movistar. He was their best place rider at 18th, so their cobbled form isn't really fixed. I mean, Iverty was in the early move. He was probably their best rider of the day. Same goes for Van Avermaet to Eschdeser Citroën. And I know once you miss the split, it's hard to have a good race from there, but it was similar issues at Harel Becker. Do you think they need to just go into these races, Benji, with Narsen and Van Avermaet, not having them as like a dual threat, but just be like, Pick one, and the other one has to work for the other. Um, I think that the situation they were in today is difficult to judge because it's all coming down to the initial echelon. If they were having attacks on the Bergs, for example, that led to the attack, then it would be completely different. And then you can see who is a stronger one of the group and who can make that. I don't think today you can really say that. No, no, no they you necessarily can't do that. Because... Yeah. Van Avermaet will never say, I'll ride, even if he's not having a great day. Exactly. But I was coming down to the point where obviously you need some kind of priority, but those riders also need to be honest about it in the race. And that's an issue if Van Avermaet doesn't want to say, oh, I'm not that great today. I'm going to ride for, for Nelson here. That's an issue. And that's the big difference I see between the likes of an Ajizera and the likes of the Koenig today. Or like, most importantly, at E3, where I think the Koenig, if one of their riders is not feeling too well, he just phones it in and he says, okay, we're going to try and make someone else of the team win because it's not the individual rider that does it, it's a team. And I think that the Ajizera team has the opposite opinion at the moment in the sense that it feels like they are riding for themselves instead of the team. I love how... Astana Premier Tech straight up don't have a cobbled team. <laughs> they had three riders <laughs> finish and the Fair best place <laughs> the best place was sixty first. And we said in the preview like they literally don't care about the cobbles and have no one to ride them. But Arden's pretty solid. Stage hunting yeah, but pretty solid. Yeah. When it comes to uh Rondon Vlander, they were planning to ride it with both Lutsenko and Fulsang, but I read yesterday that the plans change and they both won't be riding it. So again, no team there for them that day. Really? Okay. Mm. Right. Yeah. They're focusing on the Ardennes. Anyway, Gendwebelhem finished today. That was our recap. We have Dwarsdorf, Landeren in a couple of days. Wednesday, I think, continuing the Cobble Classic action. Stay tuned now for the last stage of the Volta Ciclistra Catalunya, stage seven. It's the classic Barcelona circuit, Benji. Five laps of the castle of Montjuith circuit there's a nasty little climb with an eight percent kicker in the last 700 meters maybe even steeper at 12 14 percent pinches at points a short stage though 134 k's 
it started and was over before I could believe it. it was great for me. It was on before America <laughs> even was awake. That was great. It's before good scheduling beforehand for Abraham. Pretty, pretty innocuous first half, but that circuit's hard, and it's always the GC riders or a break winning. It's not possible for a sprint, um, and you've got to be a pretty strong breakaway rider. Uh, I said Valverde or Woods type rider yesterday. I think Benji said Thomas de Kent. And yeah, the race situation was Thomas de Kent and Mohoric. Mohoric, he's got to have been in six breaks this week at <laughs> Catalonia. Up the road again. They had a big gap on, oh, not a big gap, sorry. They had a minute plus gap on a larger break group containing Marc Soler, Luis Leon Sanchez. Volta in that group as well. And then behind them was the Peloton. And this is with like 30Ks to go or say. Um, and the Peloton was kind of being slow paced by Ineos. No one really taking it up going into the circuit because, well, Movistar had riders up the road. And yeah, a, a lot of other teams had, like, Lotta Sudal had. Uh, Gehent up the road and Bahrain were sorted, so they weren't really doing anything for wild poles. And yeah, the gap went out to like four minutes plus going to the circuit, which is a pretty large gap given that it's a, a short stage. Um, what did you think, Benji, with let's, let's define the race situation though? Um, about 39Ks to go, Morich and Gehent. Movistar start pacing despite Solera attacking. Movistar start pacing with 30Ks to go. Why? I ask uh, every day. <laughs> it's a daily question these days. When it comes to Movistar, start moving. Wow. Okay. When it comes to Movistar today, I think that they did have to do something because they've got a position in GC that is not necessarily too far from. Uh, I think it's almost that's the worst of the. Of the port riders, yes, in GC, yeah. a um, a subtle fourteen seconds ahead of Olvare in GC before this stage, which means that they should try something on these small hills. Olvare can try and put in a bit of an attack somewhere, or try to gain at least those fourteen seconds. It's gonna be really difficult. The parkour doesn't really fit it. I think personally, I've never really had confidence in gaps for GC today, and um, while eventually the Movistar. Um, movements, they were a bit in start-stop motion in the sense that yeah. they came to that Montjuic climb and they had one attack with Volvari at some point and that was yeah. easily countered by Yates himself and I think Thomas was pretty fast to respond, Richie Port was like 20 meters behind in a bit of a chasing section but they came back together because Volvari will not be pacing with Yates and Thomas in his wheel if he wants to drop Thomas but yeah, he could also try to drop board, but I don't think the situation was leaning towards anything of that happening. So I think another move by Moss happened on one of the next uh, circuit climbing sections and didn't really go too far anyway. I I was mainly looking forward to seeing who of the front people were making it because, well, yeah. when it comes to the end and Mohoric, uh, I think that there was some very interesting breakaway dynamic there because they found each other so perfectly in their breakaway that I think Mohoric kind of, he semi gave Thomas de Gent a bit extra today in the sense that he allowed him to come back after every descent. Because Mohoric, if you don't know Mohoric yet, pretty sure we've spoken about him quite a few times, he is the best descender in the world because he's very arrow and his cornering in these very wide bends is so, so good to the point where Thomas again, the rider that can descend is being put on like 20 to 50 meters every single two kilometer descent, which is just crazy because they come it's to crazy. the bottom of that descent. And Mohoric looks behind and is like, I should wait because we're better off together for now. Yeah. But I think this became a problem because he did it every single descent. He I started know. waiting. Well, it was only the problem for him, Benji. Mm-hmm. There was only a minute gap the whole time to the group behind with yeah. Omen, Soler, Luis Leon, Sanchez. And that pressure behind made him think, oh, I, I really don't want to be going solo. 
first at 30, then at 20. It's like, it's too early for me to go solo. Dekent's a nice engine. He works seamlessly in a two-up breakaway. And that's why he, he waited up every time. Now, I think, did he need to sit up and wait up? Or could he have just ridden threshold and made Dekent work a bit harder? Yes, the latter. I don't think he needed to sit up the way he did, especially as why take, like, why bang the descent so hard? And he was like a bullet down this descent. as the last right-hander that he came into, like 15Ks an hour quicker than Hent. But then just sit up. I mean, maybe just loves going quick. Rick and Bobby want to go fast. Uh, <laughs> as Benji said, second group behind, Soler accelerating, dropping Lewis Leon. Same time, 25Ks to go. Movistar pacing on the climb with Enric Mas. Um, it doesn't really make sense. It's like Valverde should have been the priority. I said in the video I uploaded today, get Valverde. Well, they'd already thrown the stage win away when they entered the circuit with a five-minute gap by not pacing beforehand. But, yeah, get Soler to help Mas and Valverde, but they were never going to catch that front group. Stage win was definitely up the road. We'll talk about that first. Eventually, Bowman for Jumbo Visma tried to attack and get across to Gehent and Mohoric, he never really got too close. He even got brought back, I think, by the group chasing Attila Valta in that group. Five and a half Ks to go. Thomas Dehent, with that last final climb, he knew Benji. He knew the whole time he hit Mohoric with a big attack on the steep section. And Mohoric literally was out of sight straight away. Didn't even <laughs> yeah. respond. Three Ks to go. He's gaining two seconds every second. It's not even possible. And Thomas Kent soloed away with a vintage stage from the breakaway. Another World Tour stage win for him at Catalonia. He has won so many Catalonia Five. stages. It's outrageous. Um, yeah, what are you saying, Benji? Five stage wins he had at Catalonia. And it's <laughs> once again in a, an extreme fashion because, well... You could say that the peloton doesn't care about it, but the break was pretty huge. And he always rides away from the breakaway in the same fashion. He gets away to the front, he puts in a small attack, he gets a bit gap, uh, a, a bit of a gap, not a big gap, a bit of a gap on the others. Sometimes someone joins them, and then it's just Thomas Hint, Thomas the train mode. He just keeps on choo chewing around. And he did that <laughs> today in the same fashion, and I love it. And um, it was a bit of a a crazy pick yesterday, I think. I didn't really see it as an extreme possibility to have Thomas de Gent win today, but I'm pretty proud of it, to be honest. Because uh, <laughs> Thomas de Gent being in the breakaway, it happens a lot. But it's also a lot of the times that he's in the breakaway and it leads to nothing. But when he does make yeah. it, it's in such a nice fashion. But that's what I thought would happen, Benji. I thought the peloton would want more, or Movistar would want more out of this stage for Valverde and when you look at the group behind they started pacing every every ascent of this climb every 8k Movistar would go harder on that climb and they would eat into that breakaway gap and on the last climb with five and a half k's mass forced again Valverde trying to move Grant Thomas pulled the um you better call an ambulance but not for me on Valverde and started like pacing and attacking him in the saddle, almost gapping Valverde. So yeah, Ineos, and we saw this, Thomas did the same strategy on the fourth stage, the last mountain stage. No domestiques on the front, doesn't matter. If I just ride on this climb or on the false flat descent, track mode TT, it's going to be very hard for uh, someone like Valverde to gap me. Uh, in the last case, and put any time into me. So Thomas played it perfect, perfectly, defending his third on GC. Movistar couldn't really get anything out of the stage. Volta came third. He attacked, I think, out of the breakaway group that had been distanced by Mohoric and De Hent. But it was yet yeah, De Hent, Mohoric, Volta. Reichenbach came fourth for Group Armour FTJ. Valverde, he actually beat Valverde in the bunch sprint uh, behind. Wood sixth, seventh. He or she, we'll talk about him in a second, Almeida 8th, Adam Yates 9th, Champersant 10th, and then a whole bunch of GC guys all in the same time. 
No GC movement. Adam Yates taking the GC with Port and Thomas, second and third. Ineos, one, two, three. <laughs> Disgusting. And it goes to show, if, Val, if Movistar had just kept the break in decent shape going into the circuit, they ate three minutes and 20 seconds into it in like 25 kilometres. Yeah, they could have been had a, a good shout for the stage today and uh, I think they made a mistake once again. They should have backed Valverde 100%. And otherwise, good for Volta, first world to a podium. And Ineos Benji, one, two, three on GC. Was it as dominant as it looks their week at Catalonia? Because I think it exactly was. I think they barely put a foot wrong. Yeah, I don't think they can do much more than, than they did here. I think the only mistakes they made was really getting that 46 <laughs> breakaway out there and having to chase that the entire day. Oh, but then again, it's a bit of a gamble. You know, you can't you can't really see that coming that after 12-man group, that is going to be a 46-man group. But in the end, we knew that Yates was one of the favorites here. We said at the um, time trial that GC was a lock for him. And it was all about filling up the rest of the top three spots with other Ineos riders. And they, they turned around on the mountain stage and did exactly that. So pretty uh, pretty predictable race, but also a very, very fun race. I really enjoyed it. And it's one of those races in the in the um, earlier part of the season that sometimes has me more interested in than, for example, it's with a Swiss or a Dauphiné. And I don't really know why. I think it's because it's less the people that you see in every Tour de France, it's more the people that you see in the Giro or the Vuelta that are preparing other races because the people that are preparing the likes of a Tour de France aren't likely going to this race. But then again, I'm lying because half the Ineos team that is here is basically the Tour de France team. So, <laughs> Benji, Adam Yates, his first World Tour level stage race, GC win in Europe, UAE Tour, Last year was his first World Tour-level GC win. I think they have to take him to the Tour de France. I just I don't see a world in which you only send Adam Yates to the Vuelta and take Gagan Hart to the Vuelta. You got the question mark over his TT. You say, okay, shit at UAE, absolutely banging TT here in Catalonia. Was it was getting more used to the equipment? First stage, first stage at UAE, first time on new equipment. But then the course suited him a bit more here at uh, Catalonia. That being said, Gagenhart's TT isn't exactly like Pete Thomas. Like you can trust Thomas. I think his TT is kind of more likely than not go back to where it has been. And then in terms of pure climbing ability, it's got to be Yates. It's the consistency that's the issue. But then he's coming from bike exchange to the best most professional, richest team in the world. Ineos, his train can be Carapaz, Dennis, Castroviejo, and Port. Do you, do you, what percentage chance do you think he's going to the Tour now, Benji? I think it's an 85% chance. I think that it's pretty, um, pretty on point that he should go. I think to look at how his career has gone so far, I think we can highlight the fact that in 2016 he tried as leader at the Tour de France, he ended up getting fourth. It's the only Grand Tour he ever rode a good GC in. All the rest was pretty much falling through the, the classification in the final two-ish weeks. In 2019, arguably his best season before 2021, he uh, started off with a fifth position at Ruta del Sol, then moved to Tirreno Adriatico, where he got second. That was uh, after Primoz Roglic, the man who basically demolished all the races that year, he went to Catalonia, also got second, Adam Yates. Then he went to Itzulia, he got fifth there. And then he went to the Tour de France and he fell through the classification towards the end. So it's clear that, to me, it seems, the issue is not necessarily the climbing and stuff. He can do well against the top riders. I think the main struggle or the danger, the vulnerability for Adam Yates is the recovery into the second and third week. And the fact that we've only seen him achieve this once, which was that 2016 Tour de France. And if they can bolster that, and if they can foam at that and bring that 
into a good aspect and somehow get him to ride on this level for an entire Tour de France, then he can compete for a, a top five or even a third spot on the podium. I don't think it's going to be easy to beat the likes of a Pogacar or a Roglic, but so far, the season up till now, he's the only rider on Ineos that has shown any possibility of doing so. Yep, and I think Thomas, really, really encouraging performance here. He's climbing yes. way better than I expected. It's actually his TT that I'm like, bit weird that tt <laughs> result but then he's coming second and third he's climbing like he did in 2018 so that's more encouraging because the watts must be there and that's got to convert back to the tt at some point and i think yates yates carapaz port thomas is the perfect they complement each other perfectly uh against pagasha and roglic and i just for the tour the sort of climbs they have, I just think Yates is more of a threat than Gagenhart. Maybe they take Gagenhart too, but that's my view that it would be insane to me to not take the guy who was pressuring Pagacha on a record time of her feet a month ago, coming second on GC in the UAE when he lost. The only time he lost was in the TT on his first TT with the new equipment. And then the guy who just absolutely flattened Catalonia and didn't he looks so dominant at Catalonia great TT climbing record on stage three I just you can't leave that guy out of the tour team in my view but that's our Catalonia recap the Ineos choo-choo they heard us maybe talking a bit of shit about the era base layers so they came out and hit us with a one two three in GC and shut us up so yep that's our Catalonia recap we'll now move forward to the Gen Favelhem women's recap now. So we got to see a good portion of it. Well, pretty much all of the main action, which you couldn't say for the men's race, at least the last 40 kilometres and a similar profile for the last 40 Ks. As with the men's race, I'm barred from going through the parkour. So why don't you run us through it, Benji? Okay, so basically the differences lie mostly in the Bergs and the length of the overall race, of course. In the women's range, we've got 143.5 kilometers being ridden, of which the first 60 uh, one-ish are flat. And then we start the first section of hills. We start with the Skerpenberg, Fidenjeberg, Baneberg, Monteberg, and Gemmelberg. So that same like couple of climbs we have in the men's range following each other. And then we go towards those uh, black streets, all three of them. And eventually, this leads towards a last time the Gemmelberg and the Monteberg. So... We don't have like 10 to uh, to 13 or 14, whatever it is in the men's race. Bergs, we have like uh, roughly, uh, I'd say, seven, if I can count correctly. Yes. And then basically it's uh, a good 31-ish kilometers from the last top of the Kjellberg to the finish line, which is a similar uh, trajectory of the men's race. So same story with the fire. Have to do uh, a kilometer and a half extra, which led to a bit of confusion when it comes to the ticker at the left top of the race. But in the end, we all roughly figured out how the race was going. But did we see anything uh, anything similar to the men's race in this race? Did we see, for example, uh, echelons opening up or did the race take a long time to really open up? Yeah, I think that last ascent of the Kennelberg had everyone really concerned. And on the Plugstra, there's nothing happened. Um yeah, nothing really happened. It was a large group of like 60 plus. Even on the Monteberg before the Kemmelberg, nothing happened. And it was only when Elisa Longo-Borghini with 37 Ks to go attacked on the climb of the Kemmelberg and she's in a purple jersey as the leader of the Women's World Tour rankings. So that's a really annoying because she's actually normally usually easy to pick out in the Italian national champs jerseys. So just another purple jersey. Love it. Uh, and she got joined by a pretty select group, Kopecki, Voss, Cavalli, Van Dijk, Peters, Nui Doma, over the top of the Kemmelberg. And I thought, ooh, when usually in the women's races, when a group this strong with the favourites goes, it's pretty hard to bring them back because – no one will chase from behind, but 
someone chased. Um, I think it SD Works wouldn't have been too happy with that uh, that group. They only had about ooh, twelve seconds gap at most, and they had a group of thirteen or so chasing them, and they weren't working well together. Voss wasn't working she sat on and then attacked on a short rise then she got closed down and they all looked at each other and so eventually the groups came back together a group of 30 and then it was Anna Henderson Anna Henderson attacking Benji on Yumbo Visma they had multiple riders in the group they had Voss who they'd back in a quick finish and I guess they were getting on the offensive against SE Works, Canyon Shram, and Live Racing. What was the gap Anna Henderson got? It was pretty healthy at one point. I think it went like over 20, uh, 20 seconds at a certain point. And yeah. uh, I, I don't know how, like the maximum time she had, but eventually uh, it started faltering again and the gap started closing down again once the group behind started working a tiny bit together. Because obviously... If one person has a has the attack and going, then the others are not going to be super happy about that. And it's also just after, uh, well, you said it after the camelback, which means that all the people that dropped on the camelback that are behind, perhaps a decent sprinters, but couldn't follow the front group on the couple section, they try and come back, and groups form in the back, and groups come together, and those groups that come together, they find cooperation and they come back together with the second group, and that second group becomes larger, and then the second group can easily well relatively easily catch back on to a rider like Anna Henderson at the front but I think the race basically came back together afterwards and it was not until uh, a moment where I thought this is pretty relaxed and then suddenly boom everybody started panicking because I think it was was Trix it Liv like Racing? Tried to split no. it. yeah yeah correct 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 so, that gap to Henderson was a bit of a false yeah, like they were clearly letting her dangle at 20, 25 seconds and then Trek assembled the troops at the front with Van Dyke, <laughs> Ruth Winder, Longa Borghini, Diagnan, and they started trying to split it again. They put it in the gutter and they were rotating those four riders within each other and they did, in fact, split the group and, yeah, put the peloton behind them. They were joined by Peters and Majerus from... Uh, SD Works, Guazzini, Balsamo, she's quick, Balsamo, and they caught back up to Anna Henderson. But then I think Diagnan, she let the wheel go, or Elisa Longo Borghini attacked with the other Italian, Soraya, Paladin for Live Racing. And because I always get confused between Live Racing and Canyon Shram, but particularly because Canyon Shram used to ride Lives. But yeah, I thought. Paladin would have been sitting on Longa Borghini pretty much the whole time, but she was working with her on and off to the best of her legs would allow her to. 15Ks to go. Longa Borghini has a 25-second advantage over the bunch with Paladin there. Now she's got Diagon, who was very quick in the finishes last year, but maybe not against sprinters of the caliber of Voss. Uh, she beat Voss in a small bunch sprint, but then there's Kopecky here too. It means Van Dyke can sit in. It means SD Works have to burn riders. I'm not sure where Jolene Dorr was at this point. Obviously, we don't have Van der Breggen and uh, Van Vleuten here. It's more of a contenders with sprinters like Balsamo, Bastianelli, Sarah Roy, Emma Norsgaard. Also, different jersey for Norsgaard, leader of the uh, U23. Not no Danish national champs jersey. Don't know about that either. So it was a good move for Trek. It meant they could sit in. It meant that all the other teams, pretty much the Purples, had to chase. And particularly with Nivea Doma and Cromwell, they were the ones uh, chasing the hardest, even though they didn't really have a sprinter. I don't think uh, Nivea Doma was their leader. So that was a bit... Curious to me, I guess maybe if they didn't chase, no one else was going to bring it back. And can you describe what happened with the kilometre banners? Because I got confused with the graphics. It said it was three Ks to go. I measured a 12-second gap on the road, but then there was this motorway Benji 
describe can you tell me how actually far was there to go at that motorway overpass yeah so the motorway overpass is just before they go on to the original parkour again we said before okay. already uh in the men's podcast that there is a 3.5 kilometer section from the moment that they reach the original parkour to the finish line the motor pay, the motor uh, motor section is just before that so there was roughly a 4 to 3.5 kilometers to go while the original thing on the left up was saying 1.9 kilometers because that's the original length that was still left if the race was ridden on the normal parkour they just didn't seem to have updated it correctly so very chaotic because the commentators were like oh my god how far is it and it all really became non-confusing the moment that we hit the three kilometer banner on the original parkour again then we knew yes this is three kilometers to the line we still had a gap and it was counted at 24 seconds at a certain point like i hand counted it to 16 seconds so it wasn't really correct what we're showing when it comes to seconds either. So we have to kind of guess. But I think b- between like two kilometers ago and one kilometer ago, the gap between the peloton and the two riders at the front, Aladdin and Elisa Longo-Borghini, it wasn't really coming too much closer because you've got the situation where the teams that have sprinters, they're trying to move themselves to the front. And it was not until the winner of... E3, no, was it wasn't E3, it was Dridaxe, my bad. There's no E3 for women. Uh, the winner for Dridaxe, Grace Brown, came to the front to set up Sarah Roy, yeah. that we had someone actually chasing. And really powerful move by Grace Brown, moving the team forward. And, uh, well, that led in the sprint, and I'll let you talk about it. Yeah, so I think the plan for Trek was a good one, but they got very unlucky because the way I saw it was attack with Elisa Longo-Borghini, she could win. If she gets brought back, you can attack with Ellen Van Dyke, force other teams to chase, and hopefully Diagnan, who'd been marking a lot of moves, can then contest a messy, reduced sprint. The problem was Elisa Longo-Borghini got caught just at the wrong time. 500 metres to go to the finish, so she's obviously not winning, but it's also too late for any counter-attacks because the sprinters trains and teams are pretty much assembled and that's what we saw on the right well there was move on the left hand side they come into about 200 meters to go it's still a very large group there's not been really there's not time for any other attacks and they've all spent their biscuits trying to bring back longer borghini and paladin who i thought were going to be caught at three k's because paladin was cooked Mariana Voss comes up the right-hand side, opens up her sprint. She's got Lotte Kopecki in the Belgian National Champs jersey right on her wheel in the draft. Voss opens up early and no one can even come near her. And, yeah, Kopecki didn't even come past her back wheel. Incredible sprint from Mariana Voss on the right-hand side of the barriers. As she looks at it, beating Kopecki, Third, Lisa Brenau, the German, who in the German national champs jersey. Fourth, Balsamo. Fifth, Bastianelli. Sixth, Emilia Farlin for FDJ. Seventh, Kristen Faulkner. Eighth, Sarah Roy. And ninth, Emma Nosgaard. And who came tenth? Lauren Stevens for Team Tibco, Tibco Silicon Valley Banks. So they got two in the top ten, Team Tibco. Not too bad for them at all, but a double today for Yumbo Visma. Pretty pretty impressive from them and Voss dialing back the clock. I mean, I'm trying to think of what other teams could have done differently, but really, Benji. I think Trek could have done something differently. I um Okay. Like when? the situation when the echelons happened, when they made the echelon themselves, I think they should have done diff- things differently there. So like, to give context to what I'm about to explain, let's talk about echelons. How are echelons made? It's by riders at the front, making sure that the crosswinds affect the riders behind them by moving in line to one side of the road. This time it was the left side of the road, where they were making sure that everybody was on the side so that everybody had to put in their max effort to stay on the wheel of the rider in front of them. If there is a gap, it's going to be really, really tough to stay on the wheel of the rider before you. That's how the gaps are created in echelons. Once there's a gap of like 20 to 30 meters, you got to change the tactic in the echelon because then you need to start riding diagonally because then you're helping the people behind you. And if you keep doing that, 
riding diagonally, then you're going to have much more with the energy to keep going with the echelon because the riders that are in your wheel are not having as much trouble following your wheel. And that is how echelons are held after they are made. And in this situation, Trek Sigafredo women, they made the echelon perfectly. They went to the side. And even the Belgian commentator mentioned it while we were watching that they kept it on the side. And that was an issue because then it's harder for the people following and it keeps putting people in trouble while it would have been much better for that six to seven women group to ride diagonally to keep the echelon going. And then you would have had a bit of a track battle against the people behind you. And I think that's how that situation would have gone differently. And because of this issue is also one of the reasons I think that Longo Borghini got away in the first place. Because she got away, I don't think it was totally on purpose, that attack. I think the second rider yeah. just lost her wheel. And I think this is why. I think she, f- and, well, they fucked up the echelon a tiny bit. And was it even optimal? I know it's a good move, but if you've created a split, which they had, and you've got four riders in the group, then why not just try and have a, a group where you can use that numerical advantage? And they yep. were the strongest team. Instead, they've created a situation where, yes, they got Longo Borghini up the road, but it's a massive group behind that hadn't really done too much up to the Kemmelberg, big effort there, but then they've recovered for a, maybe 10Ks plus. So it's just less likely. It's not like the uh, – it's not Trofeo – Alfredo Binder, where um, it was a smaller group that was trying to chase down Elisa Longo Borghini without multiple teammates. And I think for, so yeah, Trek probably would have been better off having a group of eight, nine, with three or four of their riders in there, then develop an advantage over the group behind, then roll attacks with Van Dyke first, then Elisa Longo Borghini. Canyon Shram, Soraya Paladin on the move. Great, she followed it. Maybe she could have sat on more, but I don't think she was ever beating Elisa Belonga Borghini either. And it kind of played out well for them. They got a lead out for Capecchi right on Mariana Voss, and Voss was just too good. And that's just the way it is sometimes. Voss is boss, and <laughs> she didn't really need a lead out. She, she was her own lead out, taking out Hen Favelhem. And let me look up. Her 232nd pro road win, I think, according to PCS. So pretty solid, to be honest. Um, and then we'll have Dwell's Duel of London women, I think, on Wednesday. I don't have the video rights for that, unfortunately. But um, is it a world tour race, Benji? Women's world tour race, Dwell's Duel of London? Anyway, if it's um, on, I don't know. We'll cover but it. We should, we should cover it. Either way. Yeah, yes. we'll cover it anyway. So it doesn't really matter. We break the rules here all the time. But thanks if you've been listening on the podcast players for listening through the race triple header on this Sunday. Pretty late right now, but pretty good day of racing. Not, I wouldn't say it was uh, as banging as E3 Harrell Becker, but anyway. Maybe there's like a course discussion that's going to be held in the Belgian media that we will never hear about. But thanks for listening. This was the Women's Ken Fableham recap. And uh, if you want to see, if you're listening on YouTube, there's the other two uh, videos for the Men's Ken Fableham and Catalonia Stage 7. Thanks as always, and we'll see you for Dwell's Door of London on Wednesday. Ciao.